So in some cases, people are creating a product brand for cash flow. Maybe they have a day job. They don't really want to leave their day job. They like their career. But this is something to do on the side, something for cash flow. So if, if you're just in the business for cash flow, own it. Be in the business for cash flow and don't aspire to do anything else. If you're wanting to sell the business at some point, then you need to plan ahead of time to be able to hit those points. Because ideally, you do want high margin and high growth when you go to sell. In the market right now, that's what the investors are looking for. Hey guys, welcome to Launch and Scale. This is episode 18, and we are gathered here today with Corin Woodmass. We were just talking about how um, I could have potentially screwed up his name like everyone screws mine up, but he, he got mine right and I got his right, so that's cool. Um, well, Corin is the uh, founder, I believe, Yes, founder of right. the FBABroker.com. And today we're going to be having, um, okay, well, what I love about Corin and the work he's done is he's been where you guys are right now. He actually got his start becoming, before being an investor and a broker in this space, um, he started, create, uh, started, scaled, and sold his own uh, CPG company um, for physical products. And so he's really been in your shoes as an entrepreneur that's looking to really build something and sell that and really seeing um, how to package a business to a point where you're able to sell that. So he's, now that he works on the investor side, his like lethal weapon really is that he's seen both sides and he totally understands what it's like to be an entrepreneur and where you need to focus on your margins and growth and, and that sort of thing. And really when is a good time to, to scale? When is a good time to sell? And what does that whole process look like? So um, we're just going to be kind of having a frank conversation about what that is. Um, but I'm going to shut up because I have a tendency to ramble on. So Corin, um, did I miss anything in the introduction? No, that was pretty great. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, so what I would love to know, where is your accent from? I'm Australian. So You're Australian. I was uh, okay. born in Brisbane in Australia. Okay. I live in Austin in Texas currently. Okay. Yeah, but traveled quite a lot. So my barber thinks, swears I'm, New Ze I'm from New Zealand, which my dad's a Kiwi, so I do have a mixed accent. <laughs> oh, that's okay. That's exciting. And when did you make the jump to Austin? Um, earlier this year. So we went on and off um, for Ryan's event. I was here last uh, July, August um, mm -hmm. for the first time and then really liked it, figured out the visas and then came back. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at doing that too. I'm based in Toronto, so I'm not as far as Brisbane from Austin, but I really, really love that city. So I'm super jealous with that. Oh, awesome. So Yeah, we could talk about that later if you like. We really can't. Yeah. I've spent about two weeks collectively in Austin and like, I freaking yep. love that city. Um, but conversation for another time. So first thing yes. I'd love to know is, uh, can you tell me about the original brand that you started? Like going back years ago, why did you even want to start a physical product company in the first place? Yeah. So my background's a little bit, um, a little bit different. So I've been a long time entrepreneur, had a lot of failures. Um, my biggest success came through when my wife and I left Australia, we wanted to figure out a way to fund our travel. And I started buying, building and selling um, online assets. So I started with um, affiliate websites, AdSense websites, e-commerce businesses. We built and scale an e-commerce e business as well around that time, had some wins and some failures. Um, 
what I noticed during that process, because I saw a lot of deals. So I really started more as an investor than and start from scratch entrepreneur, I okay. guess is the best way to, uh, to describe it. So I, I was focused on looking at deals, finding the best deal, the best return on capital and got my start that way. And then the switch to becoming a broker actually happened when a, a few of my friends were asking, how do you actually do this? How do you vet a website and make sure it's not a scam? How do you find a good brand? All these type of things, the questions kind of came up over and over again. And on the sell side, other friends of mine that were also built from scratch entrepreneurs were saying, how do I sell this? How do I value it? How can I make it more valuable? So I kind of started for free. I, literally my first consult, someone bought me lunch <laughs> to review a deal. And I said, hell no, I wouldn't buy this deal. And they didn't. So that was a, that was a win. <laughs> so, so that's okay. how I got, got started. Right. So the businesses that you were buying, you were buying them for yourself to then go in Perfect. and scale why yeah. did you why did you go in to buy like not established business but something that had a bit of legs already versus starting yes. literally from zero yeah absolutely so i was in a spot where i had um capital i also had time but i had capital and i wanted to bypass that startup phase because that's really tough and i've yeah. built and started a bunch of things that didn't work out so i thought what if i just added fuel to the fire my last corporate job before leaving australia was digital marketing executive for a large travel company so i had a lot of digital marketing marketing experience prior to that i had a lot of time in commercial real estate management so i had kind of the financial project management and then digital marketing all rolled into one which is yeah. quite a weird skill set to have, but, um, but very valuable in this set. space. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so you, yeah, it just it kind of clicked. Because through the commercial real estate, like that's something I don't have experience with, but I can assume there's, you learn quite a bit on deal terms and litigation kind of through that process because of the amount of money that's on the table with those deals, right? So Yeah, absolutely. And negotiating with tenants when you're doing a renovation or something like that, that was... Yeah, I did. I was in in on a fairly large portfolio, so I saw a lot of different um, a lot of different deals, a lot of different scenarios in running those those deals. So yeah, it all it all kind of um, comes <laughs> comes into play now. I still remember things that one of my old bosses taught me that I I use in negotiating today. So yeah, it's it's kind of cool. Yeah, all the experience really does compound over time, right? So absolutely. Um, Cool. So when you, when your business is called the FBA broker, um, now that I'm in the space, like we, we distill the brands online between Amazon sellers that primarily use Amazon as their sales channel versus those that are building a brand, sorry, by Amazon as a sales channel. So they have their own website versus purely being on Amazon. Um, do you work with both of those kinds? Yeah, so we're moving more into the the direct-to-consumer brand is really what we're looking for that have scale. So 5 to 50 million plus in revenue, you have a direct channel to your customer, you have unique products and a real brand. And I'd love to dig into what an investor <laughs> sees as a real brand. Yes. <laughs> um, so we can definitely talk too. about that. But that's that's what we're focused on. Yeah, because yeah. one thing Ryan talks about a lot, so Ryan Daniel Moran, just in case you guys don't follow him, you need to follow him. Um, one thing he really talks about is how 
Amazon should be a sales channel and it's great for your first product to kind of get in there, understand manufacturer relationships, understand what mark, like what sells, what doesn't sell, kind of like that first year of trauma to figure out what really works. And then you can start to build a brand off the back of that. And so I find the, the, the people that come work with us, what they really, because I, I do Kickstarter launches. So what Amazon sellers love is they're like, okay, cool. When I'm developing my proprietary product, I need to now start building a brand because brand is equity. Brand is us owning our customer data. It's that relationship. It's that longevity. And you're really like almost future-proofing yourself from Amazon. You're basically making sure that you have the control versus purely being on Amazon itself. Amazon has all the control, right? So as like, you say you're moving more toward the actual brand side off of Amazon. What are some of the things you like about investing in Amazon only companies? And what are the things you don't like about investing in Amazon only companies? Yeah, sure. And that's that's a great way to phrase it because that's really what drives value in a deal is the buyer. What someone's going to pay you really matters, right? And what we're seeing over the last four years, so I started the FBA broker four years ago to focus specifically, it it was my intention to start with one vertical at a time and then expand out from there. But this space grew so fast that we never moved into another vertical. And now we're just moving up the value chain. So that's kind of how that's transitioned. But also what I've seen over time is the average I call it the average Amazon business where it's purely Amazon. Um, Maybe people are just looking for what's selling, making it a little bit better, slapping a name on it and thinking that's a brand and competing on price or position or whatever. So those type of businesses, they used to sell very quickly. Now they sell, they still sell but the, the multiples are slowly dropping over time. So the, the value of that business is declining. Yeah. What is increasing at the exact same time is investors wanting a real brand. And from an investor's perspective, there's a couple of things that makes a brand. So I have a lot of conversations with people that have uh, had a call this week, actually, where the, um, the owner of that business has five brands. And they, every time they find a new um, product to go after, they, they create a new brand. It's not a brand. Oh, no. <laughs> a it's brand just a new product a, with a different name. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What, what you're really wanting and what the big investors want that pay big multiples, what they're looking for is a direct line to the consumer. So that's the direct-to-consumer piece of the puzzle is how do you get your products? How do you get in front of your products? And the reason this is valuable is large companies like P&G, Unilever, all these type of companies, they used to advertise on TV, right? And they could control the media because they had these huge budgets to spend. Mm -hmm. What you're seeing now with the online marketing channels, um, direct-to-consumer Kickstarter, brands can actually break through direct to the customer. And even Amazon in some cases, right? It's a good launching pad because you can prove the concept. You can get that product product market fit and get some scale behind the business. But that's really step one. Just like Kickstarter, you you do one Kickstarter, you don't have a business. You don't have a brand. It's the start of that. So I was actually talking to an investor last week. I'm going out to meet him in Frankfurt. He's based in Germany. And he had a, a really great analogy for this. He's invested in consumer product brands for a long time, growth capital outright 
acquisition, all that good stuff, large brands. Yeah. He, he likened Amazon to a movie theater. And I asked him if I can use this analogy. He said yes. <laughs> so Excellent. I'll, I'll give good, him credit good. for that. Yeah. He, he said that um, it's very much like a movie theater where you create a movie, you can get distribution through the movie theater, but what you do after that is up to you. So whether you get into um, into McDonald's and have your stuff on Happy Meals or do other sort of um, licensing plays with your brand, that's up to you. The distribution is only one piece. So that's why he's actually looking at these brands. And the, the true test of whether you have a brand or you don't have a brand is if your product is side by side with another in the same category and you can charge more for your product. If people will pay a premium especially on Amazon, because there's an infinite choice. If they're going to pay double, triple for your product, you have a brand. It's even better if you have a direct channel to bring those customers in at an affordable price. That's the, that's the secret sauce right there. Yeah, and the differentiator, and I know this isn't really a marketing conversation, but um, you'll get is that I talk, we both talk sellers all the time. Like Amazon sellers are like, all right, I get this whole, I need to build a brand. So I'm going to build a website and create a new product. So they take a me too product and make it, they just tweak it. Right. And then they're like, I can launch this on Kickstarter now because it's new and different. But what's the difference between if you put two products side by side, but this one has an amazing widget that they charge $10 extra for. Why is that? not a brand, not enough to be a brand, just because you differentiated on product. Mm. So I think it has to go beyond that. People are really smart with what they're buying and they want to buy into a story. I was joking to someone the other week that um, since coming to the US, it's a very much consumer-driven culture and yes. people want to be offended about something and want to stand for something, right? So the, the fact that I buy this brand over that brand that's me identifying and that says something about me. So if you can get into that sort of space, whether it's within your niche, a lot of sporting niches are like this, um, the vegan movements in oh different gosh, verticals, yes. uh, <laughs> you know, almost <laughs> yes. militant uh, level. Not saying it's right or wrong, I'm just commenting. Yeah. But um, that's the thing where you can really have a deeper impact with your, your brand and your story. Um, <laughs> that goes a long way, but you need to prove it by being able to compete on price. So you have to be able to sell higher consistently and have a way to reach your customer. Oftentimes, sellers don't want to get out of their bubble. Um, there's kind of an internet marketing thing where I can sit at home and I can make millions, which a lot of clients yeah. do. We have a client right now, we have their business listed for $11 million and they started two years ago from scratch. Gosh. <laughs> that's, that's a big deal, right? If you yeah. can solve rate figures after two years, that's awesome. And they pretty much did that from their, their home. So that's attractive, but they could also take and grow this further. And that's the type of investors that are looking at this brand saying, well, here's what else we could do with it, with our distribution, with extra capital, with extra knowledge. How about, do you guys want to come along for that ride? Mm -hmm. right? And that's the kind of opportunities they're seeing in front of them right now. Absolutely. And when do you know, or when someone, 
I would say the people like the people I talk to are either first product Kickstarter or their second or third product. I got to get off Amazon. Like those are my two people. And they aren't necessarily looking at selling the company. Like long term, they have a hard time telling me what their 12 month goal is. So when is it when would you consider as the right time someone should look seriously at what their exit plan is or even whether an exit plan is necessary for that brand? So when I when I owned and operated um, all the the small businesses I, I acquired, um, one of the things I would do every month, and this just probably is part of my personality, I would look at the numbers each and every month and figure out exactly what everything was worth, because that's kind of how I roll. I'm like, what is this worth? Is this going up or down? What can yep. I do to improve the value of the business? Right. So that's what I would do on a month to month basis. What I would actually do when building a company, and this is actually something we're doing with the brokerage, which is a completely different um, animal than a product business to sell, but having having a plan of how could we sell this and what would we need to do to be able to sell it and what could it potentially be worth. So even if you're not wanting to sell the business, having having a business, especially a consumer product business, that you you know your numbers, you know what the thing is worth, you know who could buy it, and what would make it more attractive will actually result in you building a better business that's kicking off more cash, that's more fun to run, that you actually care about instead of just building something to flip in a couple of years. Yeah, definitely. Because it's like you're you're taking it seriously. It's like you know it's possible. Not, not that you know it's possible, but it's just... There's something because it's like um, I'm a triathlete, so I only take my training seriously when I register for a race because then I know there's the accountability of that end date when I need to be able to perform physically, right? So um, I see it like that. If you don't define the outcome you're looking for, you're going to do it half-assed. You won't look into building systems. You may not care about margins because you just want to grow to some number you haven't defined as your exit goal or anything like that. So I can... I can definitely relate with that. Yeah. I, I had a call with a client. We actually did an egg, a, a legit exit plan with him. He, yeah. the, our first call, um, he said to me, Corin, I need to, I need an investor. I need to raise growth capital. And he'd grown year over year very quickly. Mm-hmm. And on the surface, he had a nice brand. They, um, margins, the, the price point wasn't quite there, but the brand itself was nice. It was in a great niche. Yeah. Um, all Ticked all the boxes, right? A, a lot of the top-level boxes. Once we got in and dug into the actual financials and behind the scenes of the business, we found out the problem he, he was up against was he didn't have good enough margins. And now we have a game plan for him mm-hmm. of what to focus on and when to go. So maybe in six to 12 months, we'll be able to take that business, go to market. But in the interim, he'll be able to pocket more cash and really understand that the the business should be able to fund itself. If your business isn't funding itself and you're in year two, three, four, that's a sign that something's wrong. In the beginning, yes, you need to pour more money into the business just to get it going. But there should be a point at year two or three where the business is kicking off enough cash for you to live and comfortably mm-hmm. grow the business itself. That, that's a, one signal that you have a healthy business if, it, if you're not needing external loans to, to grow the business. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, you actually brought up, uh, well, got me to remember a question I had. When you 
I was doing research on like your work before. Um, brokers traditionally take a percentage on the sale, but it sounds like you do more than just matchmaking. You actually do, you come in a bit earlier and do strategy on an exit plan. You do, you help refocus entrepreneurs so that they're able to put a certain plan in motion to increase their valuation and stuff. So how do you actually work with people if it's not, because it doesn't sound mm -hmm. like a traditional broker unless if I don't understand what brokers do. But yeah, yeah, no, def like. definitely not the, the standard brokerage. And we're actually moving into an investment banking brand, which suits more of what we actually do. So we focus on three things. So one is strategic planning. So that may be six to 36 months out from selling how to maximize the value of my business, how to get a great exit, how to be prepared for getting through diligence, which isn't mm -hmm. just getting an offer. It's actually getting to the point where you'll get paid. Right. Yeah. So that takes a lot of time up front. And I take this personally. I want you to get the best result for you, even if it means don't sell. I've, I've actually had conversations with friends of mine, with people that reach out to me saying, look, don't sell. And here's mm -hmm. why. Right. And selling isn't the only option. So the second thing we help with is acquisition strategy. So if you're building a company, it's kicking off a lot of cash, maybe you're not at the point where you want to sell yet and you want to grow, you've got a couple of options. You can organically grow, so you can grow more lines, you can expand the product line. That's where most people go if they've built the business from scratch. But there is another opportunity of acquisitions. So we can work with people that are in a certain size range looking for acquisitions and how to go about that. So that's the second thing we do. The third thing is growth capital. So if you if you do have a healthy business that's growing very fast and you do need more capital to, to scale, we can help with a strategy for aligning the business in, in a way that investors would be interested in it and also going out helping um, actually secure that capital. Yeah. In, um, I noticed in a previous video you did, you talk about growth capital being tied to an investor that could be like a silent partner almost or someone that has an active kind of semi-active role in the company. When you talk about growth capital that you bring into a company, does that include you guys actively seeding yourself within the business too? So what we're moving towards next year is actually being a fund to do this. But for right now, we're connecting people with the right strategic partner because capital is a commodity. I know this is weird to hear if, you, um, if you're struggling with scaling your business, you might think, no, capital isn't easy to <laughs> get limited. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it actually is. Um, if you know the right networks and what to say and how to position a business, the capital is the easy part. The hard part is figuring out where you need to go and how to pair that capital with the right partner to take you where you need to go faster. Otherwise, you might as well just get a loan. There's no need to give up equity. And there's all sorts of structures for capital, but that's probably a deeper topic than we want to talk about right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, okay, in terms of this, I, this has come up a few times in the last few months with our students that, and I, I'm not sure, because you do exit, so I'm not sure if you have an opinion on pre-revenue investment, but... I have uh, sometimes a case where one of our students going to launch, say, a hardware product, realizes how capital intensive it is to bring a hardware product to market. And before they even have sold a unit, they are looking 
at getting an angel investor. But the downside to that is they don't know how to properly value their company and want to make sure they're not giving up um, the farm, essentially, of equity, right? And I'm curious if you have any experience or any um, any advice for someone that needs to raise capital pre-launch and pre-revenue and like how, just like, you know, just how to navigate that whole thing. Yeah, I'd, I'd go talk to as many people that have done it before. That isn't my wheelhouse. We, yeah, we deal with cash yeah. flows. So, yeah, cool. I've, I've been asked this by multiple people, but it's not my wheelhouse. <laughs> I actually interviewed a friend of mine who's gone through a, a number of accelerators, so I could share that with you. I also listened to a podcast this morning that was awesome, so I'll send you some resources after this That'd call. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. and uh, guys, I'll, just, I'll put those in the, the show notes or just below this video if you're watching on YouTube as well. So yeah. no, that is great. And, um, y I guess the other thing is like, when is not, when is it the right time to sell? Uh, what do you look for in someone who you think is ready to sell their company? Yeah. So there's a couple of, yeah, there's a couple of flavors to this. Um, the one I'll start with the one I like to see the most, and that is where, a business is legitimately scaling to a point that it's uncomfortable for the founder. So we, we have a client right now, they've scaled to, uh, they did almost 20 million in revenue last year. Mm -hmm. They have a credit line, but the founder is personally liable for that credit line. So at some point it's uncomfortable for him to either put all of that at risk at one time because he's mostly Amazon, right? So at that point where he can literally show you on a spreadsheet what he could do with more capital, but has that limitation himself, then that's a good time to either sell the company or to get an investor on board and, and better terms on your capital that maybe isn't tied to you personally, right? That's a good, good sign. The next is where you... Either you've built, so I've had this a couple of times where you've built a number of businesses and this is almost the smallest opportunity that you have. Mm -hmm. So one a, a seller I was talking to a few weeks back, he has two brands. One is a very nice brand. He'll probably sell it for about three, four million dollars right now. That's his smaller brand. <laughs> um, his, his larger project he feels can get to about a billion dollars in valuation. And mm -hmm. I believe him. I think he's, he's on the right path there. So for him, it's carving out this smaller brand that's great. Someone else can take and scale, but that might only go to 20 million, whereas this other one has a moonshot potential. So if, if you're in a spot where you're thinking, I could sell this brand and do something else with it, then that's that's a good sign as well. Um, maybe it's scaling outside of your comfort zone as well. Some people, you know, they don't want a big team. Um, I'm Myself, I'm included in that camp. I don't <laughs> want hundreds of staff, right? Um, so maybe you need a, a staff increase and that's beyond, beyond you and you want to hand that torch off to someone else. So they're usually good indicators that it might be time to sell. Definitely. Um, you mentioned something earlier on that when people are, and you have this four-year rule, which is year one is figuring stuff out, year two is optimizing and digging down on what works, year three is scale, year four is potential sell. Um, but when you're in the scale phase, you're putting everything back into the business and your product margins are low. And yes. 
the right formula for selling is high margin, high growth. So how do you not, wow, that's like a loaded question, but how would someone <laughs> keep an eye on keeping their margins relatively okay during the scale phase while still being able to reinvest into the company to a point where by the time they're actually looking to sell their brand, they don't have to find 20 points on their margins r overnight, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. Kind That's a, a really question, great question. But, really great yeah. question. Okay, I'll uh, I'll try my best to unpack this. So okay. it depends on your goal. So some people, and I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just laying out what I've seen. So in some cases, people are creating a product brand for cash flow. Maybe they have a day job. They don't really want to leave their day job. They like their career. But this is something to do on the side, something for cash flow. So if, if you're just in the business for cash flow, own it. Be in the business for cash flow and don't aspire to do anything else. If you're wanting to sell the business at some point, then you need to plan ahead of time to be able to hit those points. Because ideally, you do want high margin and high growth when you go to sell. In the market right now, that's what the investors are looking for. Mm -hmm. They want to get their return on capital faster. That's why they want that high growth. They want good margins because they want a good return on capital. Um, I talk to people um, sometimes that have a lot of inventory in, in their warehouses, for example, compared to their net income on the business. If it's over your annual net income, maybe you're not getting the best return on capital that you can because it's all tied up in inventory, right? So that's a, a bad sign. So maybe when you're, uh, that four-year rule is is helpful and I've kind of expanded out a little bit from that, but to just make a finer point on it, um, that's really when you're starting from scratch. So when you're just trying to figure out the niche, when you're um, just figuring out what works, then you get something that takes and you expand that product line. When you're in that first couple of years selling, you're not going to get the maximum return. You can still sell, absolutely. Um, the guys I was talking about earlier, an eight-figure exit after two years is awesome. Mm -hmm. Most of the investors we're talking to are saying, why are they selling so soon? Right? It just they're at the beginning of what this thing could be. So there's multiple reasons of why, but you just won't capture the, the full value if you mm -hmm. sell too soon. And it's also usually not optimized. So you can get to a point where a couple years in, you've got your, your product dialed in, your brand dialed in, and you're working on margins. So maybe you trim down the SKUs, you increase prices, get better terms with your suppliers, and get things moving while it's still growing, and then go to sell, right? So that it, it is a balancing act. Um, it's not easy to do, and you'll never get it perfect. But there's also no perfect exit. So there's no perfect apex to sell before it all comes crumbling down. Investors aren't dumb, right? They're not going to put their money into something that they think is going to go to zero. So that's why the growth curve is really helpful. Yeah. And even after you secure the deal, money's in the bank, do the deals you have have a traditional earnout period where you have to play like the founders basically placed in training through a transition period or anything like that it depends on the deal and it depends on the buyer so the experience level of the buyer the infrastructure that the buyer has all comes into play and also how risky the deal is so if it's a newer deal so say you're two years in and you're doing eight figures in revenue that's exciting but also that could turn just as quick 
Mm-hmm. So the chance of you getting 100% cash at close and walking off into the sunset is pretty low. And for you to capture some of that upside, you may want some upside after the deal closes. So maybe you roll some equity, which means you retain some equity moving forward um, mm-hmm. into the company. Maybe there's a hurdle where if the business continues to grow and you hit X amount in sales next year, you'll get a bump in in um, an extra bonus, basically. Yeah, right? right. So it it depends on your price expectations, the type of business, and the investor you have. If it's a new investor and someone that's say never sold on Amazon before, never sold physical products, and you need to give them a lot of training, well. Your that's broker can bake that into the deal. <laughs> and that's what yeah. we do is we, we bake what's needed into the deal structure itself. Um, sometimes it's a simple hold back or a short note where they'll pay you X amount in the future. And usually that's tied to not performance, but it's tied to reps and warranties in the okay. contract. So you're saying what I'm saying about the business is correct as far as I know, here's the business, right? And you make some disclaimers. And maybe some of that is tied to the note. So in 12 months' time, everything is what it, what you've said it is. Then you'll be paid that, that cash in, say, 12 months' time. But yeah, it depends on the size of the deal too. Um, there's very few eight-figure deals that are all cash at close. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, for sure. yes. <laughs> That's for sure. And so the payout period is usually after like a 12 months or is it vet, like paid over time? Over yeah, it depends years? on the I deal. Mean, like, yeah, okay. Yeah, so um, anywhere from a seller note specifically can be anywhere from one year to five years. Uh, call this morning was a, a deal where it's a five-year note at 31% of the deal is over five years. So that's, that's the structure that the buyers offered in that case. Um, another one this week, Earlier this week was a four-year note. Um, we got a, a balloon payment there. So they'll get paid out sooner, mm-hmm. right? If, if the um, cash flows of the business can support it, they'll get paid out earlier. So, um, But it's like a backstop. But you, you need to understand with deal structure that you're becoming the bank and there's risk involved. So we often try as best we can to make sure that upfront number is the the client's hell yes number and then whatever else comes after that is almost like a bonus um we don't pitch it like that of course but if you mentally prepare for that because once you hand over the reins of your business especially if they're newer once you're gone you don't have any control over what happens next yeah this has been great i always like to ask if there's anything i should have asked you but i didn't yeah um wow I think everyone running a physical product business should read Profit First um, oh just to get yes. a handle on numbers. So it's it's a relatively simple framework for people who don't like numbers to understand numbers. So I'd, I'd look at that. And I'd also read anything, um, start with audiobooks even on investing. So the um, podcast I'll be sending you later is called Investor Field Guide. That's a really good one. It's quite dense um but that's that's a podcast that you could listen to there's tons of audio books out on investing if you get the investor mindset even at a high level you can understand how to look at your business like an investor and i think more people that do that with their products would Mm -hmm. would go a long way um other things if you don't like reading check out shows like shark tank and the profit uh, a great tv shows to watch where you can use your downtime to learn a little bit as well um the way marcus limonis has built 
over the years acquired all these companies and then built a conglomerate is kind of fascinating to see unfold. So that's been cool. That's awesome. Um, do you have a specific, like if you could recommend one audiobook in the investing space, what would that be? Yeah. Um, I'll give you two because okay. <laughs> yep. one's my personal favorite, but not everyone would like it. It's called um, I Love Capitalism by Ken Langone. He's the co-founder of Home Depot. Um, Ken's who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> so I'd highly recommend yeah. that one. It's very okay. interesting. Yeah. Um, also, actually, another book that I just couldn't put down. Um, no, it's not over there. Um, on, <laughs> I'm just looking at my bookshelf. <laughs> um, it's the uh, Warren Buffett book. It's called The Snowball. Um, it's the closest thing we'll ever get to an autobiography on Warren Buffett. Um, someone was commissioned to come in and write write the book. But having his perspective on how he thinks about investing is really interesting. And the story itself isn't dry. I, I found myself listening to it when I was going out for coffee. If I was just Ooh. running out for takeaway coffee, I'd put it on. So that's usually a good, a good sign. That is so important because I find that I, it might just be me, but any dense topics like investing can be be horribly boring to get through and so it's great if you have you're a lot more like if the content is engaging with that yeah absolutely and both of those in my opinion at least are very um very engaging okay awesome and guys we did have um mike mckellowitz from profit first come on the crowdfunding uncut podcast a couple years ago so i'll make sure to link to that in the description below um but fantastic book Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launch pad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step -step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launch pad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launch pad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.